Remember to get the handout before you get back to your seat. And if you don't have one of the handouts, um, maybe you could raise your hand and someone could generously hand them out. So, anybody need, still need one of the handouts? I also wonder if someone would be willing to um, walk the mic around the room. I would love it if uh, people asked questions as they had them. Um, that would be uh, much more pleasant for me to have a sense that we were having a conversation about this teaching rather than just um, a flat uh, monologue. <clears throat> On this particular topic, um, it's very oppressive to just get the information in a one-way direction. And I've had people be spiritually crushed afterwards. <laughs> and, it's, and if you try to teach it in sort of uh, its straight fashion, it is like a march up a big, long hill. So um, a little back and forth will help break that up. So again, hello, everyone. My name is Temple Smith, and... Um, I'm one of the teachers in the teaching count, Teachers Council at Spirit Rock. Um, I've lived in the Bay Area now for about 15 years. I grew up in Rhode Island um, and then lived up in the Northwest for a while, and I've been down the Bay Area, uh, Bay Area for a while now. used to work for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and I ran their uh, adult education and training program and um, a teen uh, meditation retreat for a number of years um, before I joined Spirit Rock. And right now I live in a little place called um, Briones, which um, is over the Berkeley Hills. It takes about a half hour to get there from here. Um, and it's a strange little part of the, of the Bay Area. It's surrounded by reservoirs and parks. And, and it feels like a little tiny slice of Wyoming, put right down, <laughs> surrounded by um, all these other little towns. So, and I have some day-longs out there every now and then for people in the East Bay or whoever wants to drive out there. Um, <clears throat> so tonight I'm going to talk about uh, a very central teaching in um, the Buddha's wisdom tradition called Paticca Samuppada, and it often gets translated as dependent origination. Um, and <clears throat> it's often a talk that's given to people who've had some experience. Um, so to give it in detail, usually it's... Um, Best given to people who have done, you know, uh, so many weeks or months of practice. Um, so we weren't actually not going to go through it in that level of detail as it's often given. Um, we're going to look at it much more kind of broader strokes. But there's just an incredible amount of wisdom and insight available through this teaching, and it keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, even though I've not been working with this teaching for um, probably actively for maybe 20 years. It, I'm still getting revelations from it. It's a very, very core, deep, central teaching. <clears throat> and one thing to say about the Buddha's teachings, um, I know many people in the room have had some experience uh, studying them and practicing, um, and maybe some of you are new. But the, uh, the Buddha walked through India after his enlightenment for 40 years, and if you collected all the things that he taught, um, it would 
be a span of books, uh, maybe twice as big as my arms, um, all of his talks. No, is, is that what it is back there? Okay, so that's what it is back there. That's not the Chinese version. Is that the Pali version? Okay. And then people added to it. <laughs> but he, he taught for 40 years <clears throat> um, in many different communities, many different people asked him questions, and he gave guidance. But what he said of his own teachings is he never taught anything uh, that wasn't about the nature of, uh, of suffering, of this word dukkha, or dissatisfaction, its cause, and its ultimate end. So for 40 years, uh, besides a little pleasantries every now and then with people just to greet them, uh, everything else that he talked about for that time was looking at the nature of how we generate uh, our own struggles in life. We often think that struggles come to us. Um, and he turned that equation around. We actually generate our own uh, agitation and discomfort and dissatisfaction with life, but we blame the wrong thing. And so this teaching that he gave uh, was sort of the most succinct teaching of how we do this to ourselves, how we trouble ourselves, uh, and often blame the world, and therefore we can't solve our underlying struggles with the world because we're often uh, not solving it at its root cause. We're solving what's showing us um, our confusion, but we don't actually go into our own hearts and minds and find the trouble we're generating. So um, that's very uh, central to what he tried to teach for those 40 years. Um, other things to say about this teaching, dependent origination, <clears throat> as we go through it, I'm not sure if I can get it all out uh, tonight because there's so much that comes from it, but this teaching is the best description of how karma works. It's the best description of how rebirth happens and why we go through uh, multiple lives, if you believe that. That's uh, a belief that you have of the multiple life system. Or how we get caught up in our own self-identity over and over and over. Um, this is the model of how we do that. Um, it's the most detailed version of how his Four Noble Truths work. What is this uh, discontent? Uh, what is its cause? And how do you actually unhook it? How do you actually get in there and unhook the, the process within your own heart and mind that's generating your frustrations? Um, it teaches about um, <clears throat> the experience of um, on, on this life is generated out of the conditions that we find ourselves in. And so every moment of your life, there are multiple conditions coming together to create that moment's experience. So it's summertime, and therefore it's warm out, but we have fans on and they're cooling us. There's a little perspiration happening, and that, the mixture of all that, all this experience of just temperature is multiple factors coming together in this moment, generating part of your experience. Then what happened earlier on in the day is influencing you, the types of whether you're tired now or whether you had an energizing day, happy day, or frustrating day. That's influencing the experience you're having now. So there are multiple streams of conditions coming in that are generating this experience. And then time goes on, and now this experience is being generated. So this teaching also uh, tries to have us look more at that at the causes and conditions that are generating our experience as we go through life. 
So anyway, it's multiple, uh, so many things come out of this particular teaching. <clears throat> and so what you have is um, uh, these 12 links. And on the handout there is the column all the way over to the left. There are these 12 um, different, uh, different aspects that come together, these 12 links. And in the teaching of dependent origination, uh, we show how one of these factors ends up being the, the influence over how the next one arises. So these 12, uh, these 12 different aspects are linked together through a cause and conditioned relationship. And so it's all the way at the bottom. There's this word avija, which is the Pali word for ignorance or not understanding. And a few of these words I've left in there, Pali, because um, it's interesting. And so you have avija at the bottom. That uh, sets the conditions out of which this next word, um, sankara, arises. And you'll see this all the way up. The previous link sets the conditions that influence how the next link arises, and then there are 12 of these relationships working their way up. So starting with avijja, which is ignorance and understanding, you ripple your way up this, uh, this chain reaction until you come to birth, aging, and death. And that birth, aging, and death can be seen in terms of an actual multiple life model. And many people think that that's exactly what this means. Other... Um, very dedicated Buddhist scholars and practitioners see this as uh, a more psychological experience, taking birth in a sense of I am. So any attribute that you've tried to um, solidify out of security into an I am, whenever that's going on inside of you, that's what's meant by birth, aging, and death. So there's this, uh, there's this rippling uh, from not understanding all the way through this uh, chain reaction, coming to what is difficult to li- in life, the, the things that are happening that we wish weren't happening, or the struggles we create. So I'm going to uh, walk us through this. And um, again, it, it takes a while even to kind of like describe them walking through, so I'm hoping to get more impressionistic, like a Monet <laughs> about this. And um, if you have questions about it, that's great. Um, but otherwise, I'll just sort of walk through it. And by the way, um, any questions so far? Anything <coughs> not clear you want? Yeah. You do. It, it helps for the room and the recording. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, is there um, a door here for freedom? <laughs> yes. Okay. So it's yes for ignorance. Yeah. Okay. If you break any one of these relationships, if you turn them, if you take the confusion out of them, the whole thing falls apart. It unravels like a sweater pulling on the thread. But the one that's the most important is down at the very bottom, avijja. So one thing to say about that, just to follow up on your question, um, that if in, if in your mind you still have misunderstandings um, strange beliefs, ones that you um, don't even know that, that you have, but you, but you had misunderstandings. They keep growing your frustration. And <clears throat> it isn't until we uh, uproot 
this avijja, this misunderstanding from our hearts and minds, that we really unravel the sweater all the way down to its core. Um, out in Briones, there are these um, uh, three or four different types of plants that um, are very prickly. Very, they have some really sharp um, tines on them. And <clears throat> I've uh, cut them back, but usually out of ease, I cut them back right where they come out of the ground. And what that does, it's almost like a, the mythical hydra. I cut it down, and then five more grow up. Uh, then I cut them down, and then 20 grow up. And so if I keep cutting them at the ground, they keep going back. And it's a lot of work to keep cutting them. Even though it's easy, it means I have to keep doing it. And so what I've learned to do is actually get a, a shovel tip under and actually get the root out. And if you get the, the, the root out, and I, it was very satisfying yesterday. I actually got a very deep one, like a carrot. <laughs> it went deep in, and I got the whole thing out. So that spot of avijja, uh, to use the metaphor, is uprooted. And there won't be, I won't have to keep pruning it back. I actually got the root out. So as we look at this, um, getting at avijja, getting that out of our uh, hearts and minds, misunderstandings, um, then we don't have to do so much work of uh, trying to manage our stresses downstream from that. So thanks for asking that. So what I'd like to talk about are these, these bottom two, avijja and sankara. There's the, the five above that, and that, um, that doesn't need so much attention. That's a, that's a very refined thing that you can watch um, with a developed meditation practice where you can begin to see how these things influence each other. But I'm more interested in the, in the center column. So as we're talking tonight, we have these 12 links on the left side, but just for the sake of tonight, um, I'm going to call those, uh, those four, consciousness, namarupa, six sensors, and contact, I'm going to call that uh, stimulus and cognition. So right now your eye is taken in color and you can see it, your ear takes in sound. You're hearing vibrations coming out of my mouth and you're translating them into words, hopefully that you're understanding. That's this process of cognition. And these, um, these four um, really are to do that. They really generate cognition. And then as soon as you make contact uh, with an experience, because of how we're hardwired in our nervous system, there's a feedback of whether that experience is uh, neutral whether it's pleasant or whether it's painful. And that influences the type of relationship that we'll have um, out of that experience. I know uh, a dear friend of mine, Kate, was here last week, and she talked about uh, Vedana Sam. It plays a very central role in Buddhist psychology, that consciously or unconsciously, we're often trying to find something that's more pleasant. And when we're doing that to get ourselves further away from what's unpleasant, and we're not successful at that. It's not possible to live a life without something um, painful. It just happens. The way our bodies are wired, where our nervous system is, so unpleasant thoughts come, unpleasant body sensations, um, come in contact with unpleasant people, uh, eat unpleasant food. There's no way to live a life without coming in contact with something unpleasant. Um, <clears throat> so there's that part of the, the chain reaction. Then we come into this, uh, this word craving, and it's the type of pleasure that we're seeking causes us to try to um, 
uh, hold on to the experience we're having and get more of it, or look for more happiness elsewhere. And so it can be very compulsive, the seeking mind, seeking out pleasure and how to get away from pain. Um, When that craving aspect stiffens up, we call that clinging. So craving is still somewhat elastic. I'm like, where's that pleasure? If I move a little bit like this, I'm seeking it. Clinging is where my mind tightens up. I must have it. I can't stand it. I first hear a mosquito as I'm falling asleep. I have the craving for it not to be there. Then there can be a click in my mind where I cling. It must not be here. And then it's a different relationship. When my mind is closed down, uh, then it's an enemy. Then my mind is already kind of stiffened up. Um, So the craving is a little bit more elastic, but it can stiffen up into a a mind that is clinging to its uh, pursuit of pleasure or running away from pain. If your experience is neutral, we tend to space out on it. We tend to coast there. We don't don't, uh, apply ourselves to stay intimately connected to that part of our life because we don't have to. We can snooze a little bit there, hit the snooze alarm and just coast a little bit on neutral experiences. And the problem with that is it actually encourages a type of numbness, um, a sort of disconnected um, coasting. Um, but because of the disconnect, there's a, there's a type of numbness that happens around neutral experiences. As the aspect of our mind uh, goes into clinging, what that does, as our minds cling around what it likes and what it doesn't like, it generates a, a process called selfing, or what I'm calling selfing here, where you begin to uh, build a, a long-term strategy around your access to pleasure or how you're going to manage your pain. So uh, this process of um, constructing inside yourself uh, who you are, what you own, what you like and what you don't like, and then reinforcing that over and over as a strategy to give yourself some security or control over your world. As that, uh, if that's born out of clinging, the self that takes shape there will also be stiff and it won't be adaptable. It's trying to give you uh, security. It's trying to give you um, reliability, but it makes you uh, non-adaptable because it's born out of craving and clinging that sense of self goes through an aging process and finally dies, either physically uh, in this life, or it might be more psychological. So I was once living in this house in Oakland, and I loved it. And I was sort of deepening my commitment to staying there, and I kind of had more fantasies about living there a long time. And then due to the relationships inside the house, relationships with the landlord, we had to move. Um, And that type of I am that I was building in relationship to the house ended. It went through an aging and dying process. And I had to move on. And that was painful until I allowed that identity to die. But in the dying process, it was very stressful. Does that make sense? Can you guys track that? So you'll see this even in the early texts that uh, sometimes this is actually seen as why we've taken birth at all in this life and why we're here on the planet in this body. So it can be, uh, there's, it's held in that regard. Why we took birth is because of a previous craving and clinging. Or it can be uh, 
our internal self-relationship that we're constantly constructing to give us some um, way to interface our world with reliability or security. Any questions about that? So the first, the first look at this uh, at dependent origination is to look at this this domino effect and see that because of avijja of not understanding, we begin to construct patterns. We begin to construct um, uh, a stream of choices. That's what this word sankara means. It's the the mental patterns we have, the uh, physical activities we undertake, and they begin to lay themselves down as grooves within us. These are the sort of the default settings. And so um, over time, uh, even though it's, comfort- it's comforting, we begin to fall into a patterned life. And that's what the, this word sankara is. And the sankaras we develop will mirror our understandings. And so if it's a very important value of mine to be loving, I will lay down those patterns. And if somebody upsets me because I have a stronger value, I won't let the pattern of anger come up. I'll actually try to hold that with some perspective. And so I can have a sankara, a very beautiful sankara actually, of uh, forgiveness and tolerance and um, patience. You can build beautiful sankaras out of right understanding. But where there is um, misunderstanding, we build patterns out of that misunderstanding. And and that's what's happening here in this stream. So out of a misunderstanding, patterns develop. So one very classic misunderstanding is when we get away thinking things don't change. Now again, if you're, if you're intelligent and you think about long enough, yeah, okay, all things change. Things change. I know that, you know that. But deep down, it's not my, it's not my default operating system. So when you ask me, I say one thing, but then two seconds later, I default kind of wanting things not to change. And I get away with it. I get away with things that don't change until they do. And then that's frustrating. So that's a type of... Uh, avijja that we have, is even though I already know things change, I have this deeper default setting that I don't want things to change. And I've been at this for a while. I've been at this for a while really trying to guide myself into a relationship to the fact that things change, either slowly or quickly, but all things change. And yet I I keep finding this deeper root. I have to kind of dig into the soil and find that actually I have this deep default setting that I don't want things to change. When I was in um, Bodh Gaya, India, where the Buddha was enlightened, I met this uh, stone carver, and he had this beautiful picture of this woman uh, bowing to the Buddha when he was um, just before his awakening, and she was giving him some rice porridge, and I just loved this little story. It was made of stone, and he'd worked on it, and I didn't I really hadn't examined my, my avijja in this situation. Because it was made of stone, I had this sense that it was permanent. Now, I know it's not permanent, 
But still, I wasn't working hard enough, and so I, I took this thing and was like, oh, this is stone. This will last for a long time, so it's worth hauling around my backpack until I get back to the States. And then I put it in my house, right in my kitchen, and I was sort of loving it. And someone knocked it over, and the statue broke. <clears throat> and the little bowing hands of this woman snapped off. And I got angry. I was like, who did that? Oh, my God. I would... So it's Buddhist art. The whole reason it's there is to remind me <laughs> that things change. And so I won't forget. And yet it broke. And my first response was like, no. Oh, it was made of stone. It wasn't supposed to break. And this is not my first rodeo around change. This is not my first. But I hadn't noticed myself believe that this should last because it's stone or it should wear away kind of romantically you know, over time. But it shouldn't break. And if it broke, there's something wrong. <clears throat> but this teaching that things change is right up front and center. It's woven all the way through the teachings. And yet, to really uproot this default setting that I want to rely on this statue, I want to rely that my car is where I left it, I want to rely on those things, because I don't have to live with the insecurity that things change. So I snuggle up in that, and it feels good for as long as I get to live in that belief, and then reality challenges it, and then I blame reality. Like, give me back my cozy, things don't change. The problem is you didn't pay attention to my stone statue. You were thoughtless, or it shouldn't be that way, or I can make a lot of excuses, or I can come to the terms, come to terms with the fact that things change. It's of their nature to change. Things, I, it worked for me once to say there are no nouns. They're just slow verbs that look like nouns. <laughs> but everything is slowly changing or quickly changing. And if I can rest in that, that's fine. If you've ever gone out on a sailboat or canoe or something like that, being out in the water versus being on land, it's very, uh, everything's changing. There's always this wobble going on. But after a while, because your inner gets used to it, and you wobble with the wobble of the boat, and then you stop noticing that's wobbling. And then you can sail. You can make use of the fact that the water isn't the earth, so you can sail uh, through it or canoe through it or whatever. So there's a way to come to terms with the fact that things change. And that's really getting back to your question. Is there a, is there a way out? The way out is to um, unravel this root of avijja and then all the patterns that grew up around it. So being well-intended, I like this Buddhist art. It seemed good to like it. It seemed good to cherish it, and I wasn't clinging to it in any type of gross way. I was just making sure I wasn't treating it carelessly. But still, it, it, it broke. So my sankharas were well-intended, but they were still based in it wasn't going to change, and therefore I built these patterns around it. And then when it did change, there was a moment of confusion and frustration until my own wisdom kicked in and realized that Buddhist heart will break. It will go through an aging process. It will go through a changing, a dying process. And then there's super glue. <laughs> and you can see the crack, and I even celebrate the crack now, because it's, it's even more Buddhist, because it broke. So really, um, in this particular model, 
an important way to stop some of the great chaos of your mind is to look at pleasant and unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences. This word Vedana is the experiential taste, moment by moment, of whether your experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if you really get sophisticated, you can see um, through most of my body it's neutral, there's a part of my body that's pleasant, and then this little pain in my neck is actually unpleasant. Most of my thoughts are pleasant, mild, but there is this one little unpleasant thought. You can scan through, you can find there's a lots of Vedanas kind of arising and passing moment by moment. It's a, it's a beautiful place to put your mindfulness. In fact, it's one of the four foundations of mindfulness for that reason to see moment by moment how your feedback mechanism, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, is shaping your relationship to the flow of your experience. That's one place to to disrupt this process, is looking at how that quality starts to cause reactivity, the wanting, the seeking, the rejecting, uh, becoming neutral, becoming bored. But your work, you would have to do that forever because down below, downstream of that, or I guess upstream of that, is still the sankaras and still avijja. And so that's one thing that this teaching has, is that it shows you how to make headway and anywhere you can disrupt this process, you don't have to go through the, uh, the aging and dying process at the end, the sense of loss, the, the, the change that you don't want. You can actually disrupt this process anywhere along, but it gets uprooted at avija. The word avija usually is just not shown with a little hyphen here, but I have it there because one kind of cheeky thing you could say is the entire teaching of the Buddha is to make the A smaller and smaller and smaller until it pops, and you just get vija. The word vija um, has the same Indo-European root as our W-I and V-I words like vision and wisdom, the W-I, the V-I in that. So it's a type of seeing that leads to understanding, vija. You see things clearly. And by seeing things clearly, um, you don't make the mistakes of misunderstanding what's happening. For me, vija is when I actually uh, change the blades on my, the the windshield wiper blades on my car, and they go across, and I actually can see clearly versus the old blades that left all these streaks that I was having to kind of steer through. Um, So when there's vija, you see things clearly. You can see what's happening. And because of that, you can navigate your world clearly. When there's vija in your heart and mind, you can see that things are constantly changing. You don't have to keep reminding yourself of that when you've established vijja. And therefore, the sankaras that develop, these habits and patterns of heart and mind, they begin to grow and they become strengthened through having this vijja at the core of your mind. And then downstream, what happens when there is vijja around things uh, not being permanent we tend not to cling to them. When I was young and I built sandcastles, there was a time when it was frustrating when they fell apart. I could believe I could build a sandcastle and the waves and the wind wouldn't get at it. 
But over time, you learn that's half the fun, is you battle with the waves and the wind, and eventually the waves take over, and you get to watch it fall apart. And so <clears throat> that's uh, allowing something to be impermanent and being okay with that. But when I was younger, and I was still learning that lesson, um, I didn't want that change to happen. So um, when there is the, the letter A in front of Vija, it negates it. And so it can be not understanding, which is sort of the soft word, or ignorance, which is kind of the heavy-handed uh, translation of Avija. So if you have hardened beliefs that things should be permanent, and you're going to make them permanent, that might be Avija with a big A, and it's really ignorance. It's really um, a, a deep misunderstanding. But as the A gets smaller, and you're left over with this word Vija, you know that things change, but you still have this default setting. And if you're not vigilant, you'll kind of mistakenly go back to wishing things were permanent. It's just a deep tendency. And so you're still trying to um, uproot that tendency. And then what that does, again, like pulling the, the right thread out of a sweater, the whole chain reaction of dependent origination untangles. And that's what um, uh, full-blown enlightenment is. Full-blown enlightenment is when there's no longer an A from this word vija. In which case, all the sankharas and all the habits and patterns that um, arise in your heart and mind, they're not organized around confusion. And so you don't uh, crave and cling to things that you know are permanent, you know are impermanent. And so that impulse isn't there and you're not fighting it. You allow things to change quickly and slowly and you develop a relationship to that, but you don't develop uh, this solidification and trying to find security where you can't actually establish security. So that's drawn out of this teaching. You can disrupt it anywhere you can. If you're craving, see if you can stop from clinging. Or if you know you're clinging, you have a hardened view or a hardened relationship to something in your life and something's challenging that stranglehold you have on what gives you security, out of faith and experience, you can begin to relax and allow there to be adaptability where before you were drawing security from solidification, you grow to uh, find this type of security through being adaptable so that you're not caught in this net of tightening and craving clinging. So that's disrupting dependent origination, this chain reaction, anywhere along the way. But the real intent is to um, get down to these core patterns, these sankharas, and below them, the misunderstanding. Another um, common misunderstanding is that if I think things are permanent, then I can get a lot of satisfaction out of them. So it's kind of one of the reasons I actually like things to be permanent, is that I can imagine getting a lot of pleasure out of them. So that one house I like lived in, uh, that I lived in, um, certain experiences that I had in life, you know, camping with friends or traveling, or and I was like, that was great, I want to have more of that. So I might begin to tighten my relationship around it. 
And then I project it forward and hope that there's going to be a lot of happiness if I can keep, keep in contact with that. And this is our misunderstanding of this word. It's a misunderstanding that's caught in this word, uh, dukkha, which gets translated as suffering, but it's really when we develop our relationship to this word, which is, again, in the first noble truth, um, is that life can only give you uh, temporary moments of satisfaction, and then you're on to the next. What is the next? What's the next moment? And what is it offering you? And what's the next moment offering you? There's no one experience that's going to flick on the satisfaction uh, experience that you get to ride out uh, for the rest of your days. Um, experiences, because they're temporary, they can only offer you so much satisfaction. So that's another type of vija, another type of wisdom, insight, understanding, where you don't over-ask experiences to make you deeply satisfied. You take the satisfaction they offer in that moment, and then as the experience fades, so did the pleasure that was connected to it, except maybe through the memory. Does that make sense? Anybody have any questions about that? Any, uh, anything you want to tune into more about that? Great. That makes it a little bit more formal. <laughs> um, my question is... I feel like we are our cravings. Our identities mm. are our cravings to some extent. And then what you were talking about, these patterns that become us, that many of us do every single day from waking up to having a cup of coffee to our run or whatever it is that we do. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it's hard to separate yourself from your cravings and your patterns and mm. then who you are. And how do you let that go? Yeah, <clears throat> well, that's that's an interesting thing, and all, almost like um, like a blackberry vine, the vines can like growing back on themselves, and so this chain. Where I wish it was as simple as a one-way chain, but then the cravings to self are some of the strongest cravings we have. Cravings to food, craving to sweet things, or the perfect sunset. Well, you can mature along that, but who I am and how I've clung to who I am and the forces that are kind of working through me that end up defining me are very powerful. They're very powerful. And so <clears throat> this is when you have the Four Noble Truths. Um, I'm not sure if you know that, that teaching or that framing of it. But one, the Fourth Noble Truth is called the Eightfold Path. And it's eight, it's eight ways that you keep developing yourself. And what that does is it weakens uh, dependent origination. And so it takes um, ethical behavior so that you're not caught up in some of the worst type of dramas that keep you really confused and keep you um, really lost in the world of reactivity and fear and um, unhealthy competition. And, um, so you begin to straighten that out and you develop a mindfulness practice you develop um, a unified heart and mind. You develop um, wisdom and understanding. And, though, and you feed them. You grow them. You walk that path and make those stronger. And <clears throat> it's almost like a, um, like a walnut cracker on a walnut. 
you don't want to crush it with your full force right away because then all the shell would go into the, the walnut. But you just keep, you keep increasing, increasing the, pressure, the pressure until you get a crack. And so you keep developing your eightfold path until you get a crack on the patterns that are compulsively um, ruling you. And they do crack, they do crack open, and they do transform. I wouldn't have known what was possible having not done it for a very long time. But having done it for a very long time, I'm watching one by one things that were still, I was having to manage and be um, caught up in last year are cracking and breaking apart and I'm, I don't have to work on them as much this year. But there are other things below that and it tends to be the tougher ones that are left over, the ones that have a very, very deep root that we're still working on. So it begins with often seeing that you have strong passions and getting to know those passions. And are those passions ones that um, give you energy to, to live your life? Or are those passions ones that keep causing you drama and reactivity and uh, are the ones that get you in trouble? And so by being mindful within your cravings, within your clingings, within the energies that are going through, you can begin to sort them out. And you begin to see which ones are really not serving you. Another thing to say about avijja is that dependent origination is the central engine of our dissatisfaction by the Buddha's teaching. And there isn't another one out there, thank God. So this is, this is the one. And it is most powerful when we do this. When it's hidden, it actually gets more powerful. And for those of you who are listening to this, I've, I've hidden the map. <laughs> uh, no one can see it. <clears throat> so as we don't look at it, it gets stronger and stronger. As we blame the wrong things, it gets stronger and stronger. The A in Avijja begins to get larger. There's, if you take the trainings of the Eightfold Path and you do them in the reverse, then dependent origination gets stronger. And so if we're less mindful, then the ignorance has a chance to grow back, to flourish. Rather than getting weaker, it will begin to flourish. If we're less ethical in our behavior, if we're less reflective and less insightful about the choices we're making, then dependent origination gets stronger. And so what you have to uh, ask yourself is, what can I do What's, what's within my reach to do here and now, today, this week, this month, that has me bring more light to this pattern? Um, strange analogy, I uh, once lived in a house that had um, a mold problem, and this, <clears throat> the cloth of this of couch against a wall had gotten covered in mildew, and I thought it was ruined. And someone says, no, you just put it out in the sunlight. And I was like, I mean, it might bite it back a little bit, fight it back, but I mean, those are some deep mildew stains. And we left it out in the sun, it killed all the mildew, and the, the couch is restored. So <clears throat> one thing about dependent origination is it thrives in darkness. And it breaks apart, it can't thrive in sunlight. 
And so rather than going in there and trying to fight everything and try to turn this thing around, often it's just bringing the patterns to light. And that means being willing to witness your own cravings and clingings and the type of self-identity you have where it's really gotten tight. And maybe even talking that out with a good friend who doesn't condemn you for it. But something like, you seem a little tight here. You seem like you're frustrated. I wonder if it's the way you're holding the experience. Could that be it? Of course that's not it. But, but, but could it be it? It's like, oh, I hate it when you do this. But yeah, yeah, that's sort of like, that's where this vibration's coming from as I'm clinging and reality is going this way and I'm trying to make it go that way and that strain is actually causing the, uh, the stress in me. And so bringing light to that is how we unravel dependent origination. It's, the, it's, it's how we dismantle avijja is bringing vijja to it. And vijja is awareness is mindfulness, to any part of it and seeing it in motion. Anything you can see, its days are numbered. The stuff we can't yet see is still somewhat um, compulsively ruling us. And there are things I can see this year that for some reason I just couldn't see 10 years ago. Other people saw it. (laughs) Other people tried to help me see it. But my mind couldn't see it. And as I begin to see one more layer What's healthy thrives, and what's unhealthy begins to break apart. And it's also here within this. That's why avijja is the very bottom of the chain. It's the deepest root of dependent origination, why we tumble forward. And we haven't gotten into that underlying misunderstanding. Um, then it will keep propagating our, our frustration. Yeah, we have someone here. Uh, you said something about the process can be disrupted at any level, and yeah. I'm not quite clear what, what it would look like or mean for to, to disrupt, for instance, at the Vedana level. Well, if, if, you train, if you train to know your Vedana, know your Vedana, then... <clears throat> quickly you can go to see that it's the Vedana level that's causing you a challenge. So when I ordained in Burma, I ordained in January, and it's very cold there. And I went on the first alms walk in the morning, my teeth were chattering, and I, uh, this is, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna catch a cold, and I'm, I'm not gonna survive this. So I went to see Saida Upandita. It was a very just tough, tough uh, warrior monk. And um, he said, more mindfulness is what you need. I go, thanks. I, I, I was hoping for some pity, but he said, more <laughs> mindfulness. So the next day, I had to go out again. And I was like, well, I've got no other option than to try more mindfulness. And so I went in, and it's like, it's cold, and I don't like it. It's cold, and I think it should be different. And I saw that those thoughts were actually exhausting. Those were the ones that were feeding the worry. And if I met it with mindfulness, it was just cold. And sometimes it wasn't even unpleasant. It was just not what I wanted. And it's like, it's cold, that feels unpleasant. 
now it's cold, and it just feels cold. It doesn't even feel unpleasant. And the more we're like, yeah, it's cold and it's unpleasant. <clears throat> so meeting at the Vedna didn't cause a lot of consternation in how do I get warmer, maybe I should disrobe, it was a mistake to come to Burma, I'm with the wrong teacher. All that was causing a lot of drama and agitation as I was seeking how to problem solve this underlying cold. And when I met the experience of cold, finally the sun came out and I got warm and I didn't get sick. And I had an intuition that a lot of the times that I had gotten sick is because there was so much anxiety about getting sick. I had actually brought an extra challenge to myself by the craving and clinging of what I wish were different. But being able to relax into the experience, um, let go of a certain amount of agitation. And so that's meeting the Vedana of the experience, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and find that you can actually still be content. You don't have to go into craving something different. It's just unpleasant. So I guess uh, just bringing mindfulness to each of these stages is the disruption in a sense? Yes. Yeah, and there is one... um, there's one discourse where they go through all the links and they say it's with right, right understanding and mindfulness. Bringing those two together um, doesn't allow that one link to uh, go to the next. And so if you work with a, a teacher like Saita Upandita, that's where he wants you to put the, the blade of your wisdom in and he really wants you to track uh, the Vedna experience, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience, as that's arising and shifting. And if you like something, be really mindful because it's so easy to crave and cling to it. Just like it. Let it be pleasant. But don't create a whole story around it, a tight story around it. And you watch your mind do that. You watch your mind create, and it's like, whoop, I tried, but the old pattern was there, and I'm now really obsessed with how I get more of that. And like, I didn't like that, now I'm really obsessed how to get rid of that, <clears throat> rather than saying it's unpleasant and it will change. Actually, I can maybe choose something differently, but I don't have to do it compulsively. And that's how we relate to Vedna very differently. They, uh, they say that's one of the, the weak links in the chain, to stop it just being a, a complete tumble. So you break it at Vedana, but really uh, the underlying work, so you don't have to keep doing that work at Vedna is to get at the underlying avijja, the misunderstanding. Yeah, there's some other people. And <clears throat> I'll take another question. I want to then take this even in a different direction. So on you. I think my experience working <coughs> with um, the Vedna I am more the aversion type. Aversion type. Yeah. So, what seems to me is that when it comes to a strong, unpleasant experience, completely bypass my capacity hmm. to. I don't know, or to let go or to understand, or to, you know, is like, is more completely, the sensation that I have is that completely overwhelms me. Mm. 
and that I am, I'm not, I don't have power enough. I am not power enough to handle that by myself. Yeah. And usually in that moment is that I feel more clear, for instance, that a therapeutic relationship helps me. You know, have somebody there mm. that can help me to um, have more clarity in that moment that my resources doesn't seem enough. Yeah. Even with, you know, whatever I practice till this point. Yeah. And so I, I, I know that experience as well, that where I'm, where I have the most, uh, the strongest avijja or the strongest sankaras, for however I'm constructed, it's, it's incredible to have a friend or have someone who's willing to help bring some light to that experience. And if you, again, look at this map, you can see that if you're an aversive type, that means that your sankharas, the patterns of your mind, there are some deep grooves around aversion. So your mind uh, keeps digging the, the groove over and over of aversion. And I'm an aversive type too. And so I know I have, it's easy for mine to go there. And once it's in there, it stays in that groove. And so it suggests some of the meditation practice you might develop so you don't fall into that groove is to develop um, the counterbalances to aversion, which is often loving kindness or patience or faith. Early on, those can be so counter to how you're organized that they don't feel like good practices. But over time, you begin to feel like when your mind takes on a new relationship to unpleasant experiences or challenging experiences, then you begin to feel how rather than being aversive, to it, having a capacity of faith or relaxation or loving-kindness instead um, is a new pattern that helps turn this around. Uh, going back to my experience, I seems that in those moments, and I have tried those things, I need another human being yeah. there with me. You know, it's like my experience is that, uh, and I'm calling this your other human being a psychotherapist, but uh, maybe can be another one, but uh, is that this stable, uh, outside me presence to bring me back to my experience, yes. whatever that is. Yeah, and that, that's a great... Uh, that's a great asset in those moments when you need it. But when you notice a trend, this is what we did in the monasteries in Burma. If you notice you have a trend, you might as well cu uh, cultivate its opposite. So I was suffering from a lot of doubt in Burma. Its opposite is faith. And so they gave me practices that I did every day. And at the end of a month of doing a lot of faith practice, it was harder for doubt to actually grab, grab me and pull me down the old pattern of doubt because I had a new capacity that I had cultivated. So if you know you have a strong trend, you can help somebody in the emergency while they're caught in that pattern to make something different, but it behooves you to practice some type of counterbalance to it so you have a different 
possibility. And then just a little, I'm running out of time, but um, this is often just looking at an individual and sort of the patterns and the misunderstandings in an individual. But you can also use this collectively. And you can look at what is the collective misunderstanding that we're all sharing. And we organize around that. We organize our communities around misunderstandings. And then the sankharas, the patterns that end up being developed, they're reinforced not just within, but on the outside as well. And so we have to then look at our social patterns. We have to look at how we're relating to the world and how we're relating to each other and how we're relating to our community, how we're relating to the, the natural world around us and look at how um, ignorance might be going unchallenged and then look at the types of habits and patterns. <clears throat> and it is just so fascinating to look at what's happened in the Supreme Court over the last three days and look at, from, at least from my perspective, it looks like this tenacious desire to actually do the right, the right thing, which is what I agree with. Um, and people who are trying to advocate for that and then watching this pushback against it and this tussle back and forth between these understandings, these, uh, these vijas and avijas, and then the patterns that create around them. And it's astonishing to me um, how deep the social ignorance can be and it's so exciting that it can be broken and so celebrating um, the defeat of Proposition 8 and Defense of Marriage Act and looking at what that, what that can do for the LGBT community. And that's, that is deep, deep, deep sankaras and misunderstandings that have been broken down over time. And then there's this chance of great transformation. There's such an upswell on that. So you can celebrate that. But then just the day before, you looked at, you can see um, racism defeat the Voting Rights Act and rear and something you, you think should be so far behind us, and yet because the roots of that, of racism, go so deep, and people are so organized and identified around that, <clears throat> that when you go, to, you go to dig that root out, the root fights against the shovel, and it digs back down, and it, it reinforces itself, so that's where it's not just the light version of not seeing things clearly. That's where you can really see the terrifying ignorance because it, the root goes deep and it, it, um, it fights for itself. And so the tra- translating avija, when people are trying to kind of come into the light, I like misunderstanding because I see people really trying to wake up but when you talk to people who are deeply organized around hate and fear and <clears throat> don't go down easy and then rally to reinstall uh, misunderstanding um, and to see the force behind that, it's just phenomenal. And so my heart sort of is celebrating and, and sad about the, what's happened in you know, just a few days this week and to see the the national political dialogue. There's so much possibility uh, for one community and so much deep um, 
embedded fear uh, for another community that um, we have our work to do socially. And this is the same map for that. It's not a different engine. It's, it behaves differently, when, I guess, when we talk about many people, but it's still this underlying pattern of what's our understanding and then how do we organize around that. So there's a layer in here, too, to do broader um, look at the organism of a community or the organism of a nation, the organism of how we are on the planet and looking at the patterns and understandings that are developed out of there. And that's also in here, independent origination. Anyhow, we've uh, crossed the line of 9.30. Thank you for your attention and for your questions. I'm sorry I didn't get to all of them, but um, maybe just to uh, end the night with a reflection, really brief, um, whether it's your first time coming or you've been coming here for years, may what we do here um, seep down into our hearts and minds, into the hearts and minds of other people that we come in contact with, and may this allow what is actually possible, this deeper transformation of our misunderstandings, to not only get managed into dormancy, but actually uprooted. I think that's the most um, inspiring part about these Dharma teachings and the Dharma path, is that they do actually uproot uh, unhelpful patterns, patterns of confusion. And so may that be what comes out of uh, your coming here, whether it's one time or many times. So... Uh, celebrate that. Thank you all. Drive safe. And we'll see each other all down the road sometime. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.